Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Good evening. Better turn me down a little bit. We're going to have an encounter of some kind. And I might have one after everybody jumps me. So we're talking about understanding, treasuring, and rightly handling the Word of God. So important. We have some issues in our culture today that have gotten into the church that have hindered us. And so we want to go after those as well. We're going to talk about um, maybe a couple of those. So here's the first thing. If we're going to rightly understand, interpret Scripture, if we're going to rightly treasure it, we have to go into the process with complete honesty of heart. We have to acknowledge our biases. Okay? And, and one of the big things that has hurt us as a, as a people, as the people of God in the culture that we're in now, is that we have begun interpreting Scripture based on how we feel about it instead of based on what it says. You, you might not have got that. Our theology is largely in the church. The reason that we have accepted certain things that are plainly not okay in Scripture is because it feels good to do it. And culture makes us feel bad if we don't. So if we don't accept homosexual marriage, for example... And look, I'm okay with the awkward. I'm totally okay with that. If you know me, you know that. We accept that because it just, you, you shouldn't feel that way. But if they really love each other, then I'm telling you the truth. This is how this stuff gets in because then we feel like, well, it's not fair. We want to be just, just loving and understanding about everything, but that's, we have to either choose to be rooted in feeling and culture or rooted in the Scripture. I know this may sound a little edgy right now, but this is such an important point because handling God's Word and being honest with it, we are representing Jesus. What we do with the Word of God is what we do with Jesus. If we dishonor His Word, we dishonor Him. If His Word is highly honored in our midst, then He's highly honored in our midst because He and His Word are one. He said at the end, and we'll look at some of these verses later, we're going to be judged not just by Him or whether we received Him, but by what He said. His words are going to be the basis um, on which we are judged. So I want to, if you have the booklet, fine. If you, if you don't, I'm on page 7. There's a little chart there that I talked about avoiding the ditches, and I just want to look at it. I want everybody to be in the healthy, happy middle in hearing. Um, Anything that's taught, including this night or any of these sessions or anything that you hear at Heart of the Father, there's a healthy place that we can have in our heart when we actually hear a message or we hear something taught or we read a book. And, and it's this middle. So there's, some, there's a few typos in here that I miss for sure. It shouldn't say healthy, happy, middle ditch. Okay, it's not the ditch. We're avoiding the ditches on the side. Okay, so here's the characteristics of being in the healthy, happy middle when we hear something. We're eager for truth. 
We're listening for the truth. We're not coming as heresy hunters trying to pick out every little thing, and if we can find one thing that's said that's wrong, then we throw the whole thing out. Like, that's not okay. That's not a good heart. We're eager for the truth. We're looking for the good. We're honest in the weighing of the Scriptures. The the honest heart is so all-important. This gets in... um, So many messed up twistings of Scripture come because we go into it with an agenda already, and we cannot do that. We have to decide we're not going into the Word with an agenda. Here's the thing. The Word of God is supposed to shape us. We're not shaping it. We get under it. It's over us. It's the authority of God over us, and we let it shape us and squeeze us. And so it does. How many have ever been squeezed by the Scripture? Dude, I've been choked where I couldn't breathe by it. And it's okay, because it is what the Lord uses to shape our lives in large measure. And so, the way that we handle it is all important. We're diligent and discerning at the same time, and then we're able to, this is one of the best things that I got from Bible college, okay? They said, have as much sense as a cow, be able to eat the hay and leave the sticks. When you hear something, it's not 100% or nothing. Okay, this is where we make a mistake. And it's not everything if somebody's flashy and whatever. Like we, we're honestly going to the Scripture and, and weighing it. So I want to revisit that for just a minute because we have an issue in the church culture, and that is that we are moved by emotion and by feeling rather than by truth so often. So I'm on point number three, and here's what it is. The church is a culture that is founded on God's truth and must not be directed by cultural trends and desires or personal feelings. Personal feelings are the source of all kinds of theology, and they will usually lead us astray few scriptures here. The church is the household of God. This is 1 Timothy 3.15, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support or the protector of the truth. We are, as a people, supposed to protect the truth of Scripture, like we guard it. That means we don't let it be twisted. We don't let it um, be manipulated for our own ends. We come underneath it. I love these verses in Psalm 119. We're going to look at Psalm 119 closer as we move through these sessions. But look, look at verse 128 of Psalm 119. I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. That's pretty blanket. I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Okay, that's the baseline. Whatever you said, Lord, I esteem it right. You are right in what you said and how you presented it. You're right. Then verse 160 of the same psalm, the sum of your word is truth. So the whole of it is truth. The whole Bible, we would say, is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So he goes for the big thing and then the little thing. Every part of it is truth. I wrote this, in recent decades, the American church has been making a very troubling shift from being the protector of God's truth to pursuing cultural acceptance and inclusiveness. Social media is overrun with pop theology that is based on personal preference and opinions and not God's Word. 
Designer gods created by the desires of each individual testify to the dominant rise of personal truth spirituality. Anybody see any of this on the internet? There's all kinds, there's 10,000 kinds of Jesuses out there. Unfortunately, and this is my concern and burden, even evangelical and Pentecostal Christians have not been immune to this massive erosion of the truth. Barna survey, again, if you want to get depressed, read the Barna surveys about the church. Barna surveys, 62%. This is in 2020, of Pentecostals said that having some type of religious faith, Muslim, Mormon, Jewish, Catholic, is more important than which faith a person aligns with. As long as you have some faith, you're good. It might be completely erroneous and false and built on demonic doctrines, but as long as you have some faith and you feel good about that faith, you're good. Okay, this is not a good state of affairs in the church. Um, so just a little disclaimer, there's probably very little in what we talk about tonight that you're going to feel good about, okay? Can I just put that disclaimer out there? But I'm going to tell the truth because we have to, as a people, own this and where we are as a people. I'm not a guy who loves to curse the darkness at all. I rejoice in God's Word, and it's so powerful, and it's so life-transformative. I've been the beneficiary of it, and so have you on some level. This thing slides, so I've got to put my water down here. Think about Jesus and how He ministered in the Gospels. You ever think deeply about what He did in the Gospels and how it made people feel? So let me just give you a few examples, and I'm going to read one passage. I put some examples in here. Many times in the Gospels, the Word of Jesus disturbed and upset people and made them feel bad. True or false? When Jesus spoke, sometimes people felt bad. True or false? Very bad. True or false? Yeah, true. So the wrong question to ask first when we're hearing something and trying to judge whether it's true or not is how it made me feel because that's not really relevant. What's relevant is the first question we ask, regardless of how I feel about it, is it true? Is it true according to what God said because He is the standard of truth? That's the question we ask first. Not how did it make me feel, but is it true? A few examples. Jesus' first sermon in His hometown. I remember the first sermon that I preached in my home church where I met my wife, 19 years old. I just came back from Southeastern, and my knees were knocking, and I was getting ready to preach in that church. Jesus preaches his first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth. He gets up there and he starts preaching out of Isaiah 61, a prophecy about the Messiah. And he implies really strongly when he says, this day this scripture is fulfilled and you're you're hearing. And if you've seen the recent episode of The Chosen, you saw how that went across with the rabbi, right? And the people in there, what are you saying? Are you saying you're the Messiah? He's like. And then he not only does that, he starts talking about that God reached out to the Gentiles, and he gives the example of Naaman. And and they're furious because the Jews are the chosen people, and that's their identity, and God loves us more than anybody else. And so when he talks about the Gentiles, that was the line was crossed. Messiah, 
talking about how God's going to reach out to the Gentiles, they take him out to the edge of the cliff to throw him over and kill him. How's that for a first sermon? They weren't feeling it. But did he tell them the truth? The truth is always an invitation for us to embrace it, and it transforms if we embrace it. If we walk away from it, it can't have its effect on us. Jesus' sermon in the synagogue in John chapter 6. This is so outlandish to me. He gets up there in the synagogue, and every Jew knows that you don't eat blood. They knew the scripture in Leviticus chapter 17 that said anyone who eats the blood of the flesh will be cut off. That word cut off is not a nice feel-good word at all. Basically, it means God's going to get you for that. Your life is going to go down. I mean, you, you know, it's interpreted three ways. If you, if you look at the, the, all the instances where it says people are going to be cut off, either it means they were killed, which we don't really see that, or that they were excommunicated from the community, and we don't really necessarily see that, or a lot of scholars believe this, and I think it makes the most sense. They're saying, if you're cut off from the people, then the hand of God is against you, and it's not going to be good. Um, he's going to deal with this on his own, because most of the sins that says they were cut off were ones that were done in secret, where you could do it when other people wouldn't know. So, that's pretty terrifying. So knowing that, Jesus gets up in the synagogue and says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. I guess Jesus had never read the bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Like, how do you build a ministry like this? Dude, don't you know this is the opposite? They're not going to get on your mailing list. They're not going to buy your books. They're not going to come to your conferences. You have just totally offended them. This is the opposite of how you build a ministry. But Jesus is so secure in his relationship with the Father when his disciples are all upset about it. I mean, they're freaking out. And Jesus says to them, he doesn't run after them and go, hey, 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 you really just didn't understand this was all symbolism. I was trying to express to you a truth. You just, you, you didn't, he didn't do that. He just stood there calmly his disciples are freaking out, running in circles. He's like, do you want to leave too? How does his disciples feel at that moment? I think they felt really good. That sermon was so good! You think any of them said that? They were like, dude, what did you just say? You did not just do that. We don't eat blood, dude. What were you, you don't, you don't talk about cannibalism to Jews. You don't do that. But Jesus is always sifting hearts with his word. And it doesn't always feel good. So sometimes it does. Sometimes the word does feel good, but that's not the basis on which we judge it. We judge what we hear based on whether it's true, not on how it makes us feel. Or we get led astray. Another example, rich young ruler. 
came to Jesus very sincere. It seems like he's got a hunger in his heart. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy's sincere. Jesus, the Bible says, looked at him and loved him and said this. I love Jesus. He is the doctor with x-ray vision. He sees inside. He goes, your problem is, and the reason you feel this longing and this hunger is because there's an idol in your heart, and it's called your stuff. And so to get free from that, you need to take all of your stuff, all of it, every bit of it, and give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me with this band of ragtag put together, fishermen, zealots, all kinds of people that wouldn't make a good core team, and come and follow me, and then you'll have eternal life and riches in heaven. And the rich young ruler, the Bible says, went away rejoicing. Oh, how did he feel? He went away grieving, grieving. And the disciples weren't much better, right? They were so confused and bewildered. And they said, Jesus, if this be the case, who then can be saved? We thought the rich were the ones that were blessed by God, but you're telling him that he's going to lose his soul if he doesn't give away. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, it's impossible. Stick it in and twist it. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. How did they feel? Didn't feel good. Feeling good is not a good test of whether something is true or not. This is the test. If Jesus said it, it's true. I want to read you one more passage here that illustrates this point. Luke chapter 13. They're all through Scripture, by the way. If you read the Gospels, like we divorce ourselves from the context a lot of times. And put yourself in the context and see if you're that person listening and watching how you would feel. Here's another prime example. Luke 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Now, on the same occasion, Jesus is ministering. He's preaching. The same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So, Jesus is from Galilee. His disciples are from Galilee. So, they're telling him, dude, back in your hometown of Lakeland, there's this tragedy that happened. Somebody, a shooter came into Lakeland High School and just killed all these people. In this case, it was Herod, the governor. They're in the temple offering sacrifices, and he kills them and mixes their blood with the sacrifice. Pretty gruesome, pretty tragic. And they come and tell Jesus this. This is your hometown, boys. Think about put yourself in that position. How should Jesus respond? And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Dude, how socially uncouth is that? 
No, I'm serious. Think about how they felt at that moment. They're like, you did not just say that on the news. Here's a school shooting, okay? I'm just putting in another context. In your hometown, and instead of going, we grieve so much. Jesus is compassionate. We know that, right? He grieved at the tomb of Lazarus and wept. We know he's compassionate. He's moved with compassion. But in this case, he's got an agenda of speaking truth and in the moment piercing into the heart with truth. Yeah, this is a tragedy. But the real thing that you need to take from tragedies is you need to examine your own soul and what's going to happen to you because if you don't repent, you're going to perish. Or do you suppose, then he's got another tragedy that happened. Do you suppose that the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, building collapse, were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then cut it down. What in the world do you preach in the face of a horrific tragedy? That's so crazy. But Jesus is always about the eternal well-being of the people he's talking to and isn't really that concerned about how they might feel at the moment. Now, I know we don't like that, but read the Gospels, and I could give you 10 more or a lot more than that examples of how if you put yourself in the context, it seems like, oh, my goodness. Feeling is not the measure of truth. God's Word is the measure of truth. And how it makes us feel, all that means is if we don't feel right when God's truth is put out there, that means that our feelings are out of sync. That's what it means. It doesn't mean it's not true. It means our feelings are out of sync with God and with His truth. How's everybody doing? You guys doing all right? Hey, I'm telling you the truth. This is one of the biggest um, obstacles, hindrances that we face as a people of God today is that we're moved by our feelings rather than by the truth. And so it messes up our theology and we take our feelings into interpreting the Scripture and we come up with a jumble of mess that ends up being a dishonor to the Lord. And we, we, can't, we can't do that anymore. We just can't do that. Jesus' words were, Truth spoken in love, yet they did not always make people feel good. His words are not intended to produce certain feelings, I'm going to suggest to you. They're rather intended to produce clean hearts and true devotion to God. So sometimes that means cutting. Sometimes that means feeling awkward and bad. And, and I can, can I tell you, like, guilt isn't always bad. 
Guilt is just a, like a red light. Don't, don't curse the red lights on the road. They actually keep you from dying. And sometimes your guilt will keep you from going astray and plunging over the edge. It's really not. You, you don't want to live in false guilt. Some people live in false guilt. I get all of that. I'm just saying. That don't. I mean, we, we, we curse things that we shouldn't necessarily curse as being always bad. They're not always bad. You have to examine why. Just like when somebody tells me that they're doubting their salvation, I say, good. I do. I say, good. This is the opportunity where obviously the Lord is dealing with you, and so you can make sure. And, and we usually, people doubt their salvation for one of a few reasons. One is that they should because they're not really saved. The other one is that they're living such a careless, worldly life that their conscience is constantly condemning them in which case they need to repent. And the third one is that they're being oppressed by the enemy who's lying to them, in which case they need a brother or sister to come and pray for them and deliver them and help and speak truth to them. But it's not a bad thing. It's actually an opportunity to get settled. Um, here's a good quote. As my, my volunteer guinea pig, Jonathan, is coming up. J.D., Here's a good quote from John Piper. My feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's Word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses of what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. Anybody can say amen to that? Are your feelings ever out of sync with the truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth, and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with your truth. Listen, here's the deal. Our feelings, our emotions, are we're not supposed to stuff them and crush them and kill them and hate them, but they're not supposed to be the engine of the train. They're supposed to be the caboose of the train. The engine of the train is the truth of God. That's what steers us. That's what draws us down the rails, and our emotions come along. Sometimes it takes them longer. Sometimes they come right along. Our emotions love the happy touches of God and the encounters. There's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But we don't so much like the double-edged sword that cuts us on one side, cuts the devil on the other, right? <laughs> it's really quiet. There's not very many amens. I, I told you that um, I put out that disclaimer that there's not going to be very many things that are going to feel comfortable today, but I feel like we need to have this conversation. So, now that I've got my, my brother, guinea pig, up here, thank you. How many love Jonathan? Yeah. All right, John, stand in front, bro. Stand in front of the board here, and I'm going to give you a microphone. We got this mic, Kevin? All right, so here's what I want to do. I think you're good to go. Am I good to go? You are. Okay. Don't stand in front of the board, brother. Stand right here. There you go. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I have some questions. I want Jonathan to tell me what he's like. Yes. Here, so I'm going to ask you specific questions. Tell me about your hair. Nappy. <laughs> Nappy. 
right. Can we say it's dreads? Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> All right. Dreads. Is that how you spell it? Okay. Do you have beard or clean shaven? Um, scruffy. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. You're working on it. Uh, working on it. Let's beard. say goatee. In between. <laughs> How do you spell goatee? Is it two E's? <laughs> Goat E. <laughs> <laughs> That's the little goatee. Okay. Eye color? Brown. All right. Eye color is You're brown. Kev. Ethnicity? Um, not Caucasian. <laughs> Is that half and half? Yes. <laughs> That's what it says on the questionnaire, you know? It says black. Half and half. Hispanic, not Caucasian. Right, I'm going to say mixed. <laughs> I mean, we're all mixed, probably. We, got, we never know what's back in the wood pile. But, <clears throat> all right, age? 35. Oh. <laughs> all right, that gets an exclamation point. All right, <laughs> height? Uh, five, five and a half. Don't forget that. Oh. Don't forget that. Five, five and a half. Wait. Uh, 157. Okay, you don't have to be that exact. But. One. That's the guy. He's chiseled now. Dude, that, that half and half works really well for having a chiseled body. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I'm, I'm jealous. Um, I already got age on there, so. Let's cross it out. Marital status. Uh, <laughs> was it? What are the options? Engaged. The options single, are single, single, married, or hopeful. Hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Hopeful. Children. Yes. How three. You have three children. Okay. All right. Now let's get into more of the internal. Favorite food. Uh. Decisions. <laughs> wings. Wings. Wings? Yeah. All right. Wings. Or barbecue. Hobbies. Um, fishing and reading. Fishing and? Probably reading over fishing. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, put both. Why? Why? Because reading is? Oh. No, no, that's good. Reading about fishing. There you go. Okay, favorite pro sport? Uh, basketball. Okay, b-ball. All right, introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Okay. Happy or critical person? Uh, mostly critical, probably. All right. <laughs> favorite leisure activities? Um, rest. Oh, rest? Is that like sleeping or what? No, just doing nothing. Vegging? <laughs> yeah, vegging. Okay, vegging. Yes. Is that a word? It is now. All right. Spiritual passions? Um, prayer. Okay. Reading. Okay. The word. All right. I'm going to put prayer. Criticizing in Brandon. No. That, that's not spiritual. That's flesh, brother. Okay. All right, now, last one, spiritual gifts and ministries. What do you feel your spiritual giftings and ministry callings is? Uh, before I went to Maranatha or after? <laughs> <laughs> Just answer right now. <laughs> um, prophetic, um, 
evangelist intercession okay we, <laughs> all right we got that under prayer okay okay all right very good thank you all right let's thank let's you. thank you for doing that okay so Jonathan has just described himself okay so I go dreads heck no how about a little aged brown with some gray in it I think that's awesome I want to put brown and gray because gray is distinguished the the gray hair is a crown of glory so y'all y'all come to get the glory but I bring it with me like okay eye color like brown is a little boring bro I mean I like you but like how about blue how about blue? Um, ethnicity, the half and half. I mean, I like, I like the cut part, but really, I think like Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> probably more pure, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> age, age 35, yeah, that's a little in, inexperienced, isn't it? How about 62? That's, that's more like getting closer to the perfect age. Um, height five, five and a, and a half. We haven't given you the half inch, bro. Um, now six foot is the perfect height. Um, weight 157. That's a little slim for a six foot. Um, let's say 185. Um, marital status, not hopeful. Definitely married. With a big smiley face. Okay. Children, three. Three's pretty good. Perfect number, though. Seven. Favorite food, wings. Dude, you don't know that clogs your arteries? Like, no, don't, no, no, don't do that. Um, smoothies. <laughs> uh, not really. Okay, reading, yes. Fishing, that stinks. No, don't do that. How about tennis? Okay, that's better. Basketball, a bunch of boastful chumps out there, no. <laughs> NFL, definitely. Introvert, yes. Critical or happy, no. That, that's too much of a Debbie Downer. Um, happy. Favorite leisure activities, vegging. I mean, that might be one of them. Um, how about hiking? Something more interesting than sitting on the couch like a potato, all right? Um, spiritual passions, prayer and the word, yes, and yes. Spiritual gifts and ministries, prophetic and evangelist. Bro, how about teacher? Like That would be so helpful to everybody, whereas these guys get out there and nobody can understand what they're saying. They, they ramble on and go on these rambles. I mean, the evangelist, yes, but... I think teacher's a better thing. So, how many things, first of all, you can see what I did, right? I changed all of my preferences according to what I am. Yeah. Uh, oh, forgot about the beard and the goatee. No. Clean, brother. Clean is the look. Clean is holy. No, I just can't. Um, so, how many things do I have to change about Jonathan before we don't have Jonathan anymore? 
If I impose my preferences on Jonathan because that's what I'm like, how many things do we have to change before we don't have Jonathan anymore? Yeah, I mean, you, maybe, maybe you could change the goatee and we'd still have him. He could shave that off. Maybe some of these things. But if we go to changing basic, driving, passion, core things about him, we don't have Jonathan anymore. This is what happens with God. Because his word is the only accurate, and this is point number four, it is the only completely accurate revelation of God's nature, character, thoughts, and ways. So important. It's not okay for us to take God's character and go, God, we actually don't like this about you. And so we minimize it, and so we hide it, and so we change it. It's not okay. Foundational principle number four, the Bible is the only completely accurate revelation of God's nature, character, thoughts, and ways. I've got some scripture there, Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. How many can say amen? All of God's ways are just. He is perfect in every way, right? There's no one like you. You alone are God. We could give multiple scriptures saying that God is perfection, right? Would you agree? Everything about God is beautiful and perfect. Every attribute about God is beautiful and perfect. Agree? Okay. So we celebrate. So here's two important questions. Who gets to decide what God is really like? And how should the church explain God's ways to the culture? And my answer is this, the only safe and right path is to let God explain Himself through His own words and deeds in the Scripture. I like this little story that Mark Deaver tells where he's, he's doing a seminar on the character of God. He said, I had made a statement in a seminar about God, and Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think of God rather differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us of a friendly deity he liked to think of God as being wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but never overpowering, ever so resourceful, but never interrupting. This, said Bill, in conclusion, is how I like to think of God. And Deaver says, my reply was perhaps somewhat sharper than it should have been. Thank you, Bill, I said, for telling us so much about yourself. But we're concerned to know what God is really like, not simply about our own desires. Touche. Okay, here's my disclaimer. Chances are nothing in this discussion will make you feel good. The Scripture text below won't make you feel good either. <laughs> Nevertheless, they are God's own self-revelation, and they are absolutely true. We were on a trip in St. Simon's Island in Georgia. Anybody ever been there? Okay, you, might, you might like it. It's very quaint. It's not high energy. That's what we like. Um, very nice beach there. We were there, and I saw a sign, a big billboard for a church, and all it said was this. It had the name of the church, and then it said, God is not angry. That was the whole billboard. And I thought, hmm. I pondered that for a while. Um, I was thinking about that. I get it. Many people were raised in angry and abusive situations, and they're highly sensitive to and triggered by anger. I, I get that. 
But we're, are we allowed to erase a large part of the biblical record and alter the gospel message to pacify those sensitivities? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we allowed to do that? Now, we can certainly, listen, we can certainly all agree that God's emotions are never out of control and that He is kind, loving, and patient with human weakness and slow to anger. Can we all agree with those things? But are those His only character qualities? Is the billboard biblically accurate statement about God's character, or could it be dangerously misleading? I think it is misleading. It seems to me that the church often feels the need to be a public relations company whose job it is to smooth over God's image in the eyes of the culture. And I honestly wonder sometimes if we are secretly embarrassed by God's holiness, justice, and hatred for sin. So what if we expanded the billboard message with qualifying statements like the ones on the next page? So what if it said, God is not angry, dot, 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 with those who sell young girls into sex slavery? He's not angry with that? He's totally okay with that. Is he angry or is he happy? Oh, okay. God is not angry with anyone no matter how they live. God is not angry with those who reject His Son. God is not angry with those who refuse to repent of their sin and rebellion against Him. We, we must forever settle this. Please hear this. Scripture alone gives us a perfectly accurate picture of God. And if we want to grow in the knowledge of God, then we must accept His self-revelation in the Bible as being entirely true. Even though His judgment is often delayed... Scripture shows that there are many things that make God angry, and His anger is always perfectly just and righteous. Would you agree with that? In fact, it would be wrong for God not to be angry about them. See what He says. I've put just a few, and I made them all from the New Testament, because I know how people think, oh, that's the Old Testament God. No, actually, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he, his character has never changed, right? God doesn't change. He's already perfect. He doesn't need a change. He doesn't need an improvement. He doesn't need a PR firm. He's, he is who He is. And we conform ourselves to Him. He's the creator. He's the potter and we're the clay. Everything in the universe was created for His glory to show who He is. A couple of verses here. We could read a lot more. I put just a, just a sampling. For you know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath, which is the righteous anger and judgment of God, is coming. The Greek there is a present tense. It's coming. It's now in motion upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. John 3.36 he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God, present tense, abides upon him. Hebrews 10. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay and again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Revelation 19.15, the little lamb, the Lord Jesus, 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he, Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. In chapter 6 of Revelation, if you read through there, people are hiding in rocks and caves from the wrath of the Lamb. Because he's coming to bring justice. See, here's what we have to understand. Wrath is not God being off the chain. He's never off the chain. It's just justice that has been delayed for so long, and now it's being implemented, and wrath is the perfect expression of justice. That's what it is. And so it's perfectly right. It's actually an expression. When we sing of holy, 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 His wrath is an expression of His holiness. So if we don't like His wrath, we don't like His holiness. We only like part of His holiness. So God, actually, you shouldn't do that. No. We're the ones that aren't right if we don't like something about the Lord. Here's, here's a favorite one in Romans chapter 2 where Paul's talking about the gospel and the need for it. This is out of chapter 2. I'm going to read some verses here. We cherry-picked the one in the middle, which is verse 4, but you have to get the context to understand. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What does that mean? It means His kindness is supposed to give us motivation to repent before it's too late. His kindness in this context is that He waits. He doesn't bring judgment right away. He gives us time and gives us chances over and over again to respond to Him. That's His kindness. There's a window now. There's a window of mercy where we can respond, and that's where the command to repent, and that's why the gospel is the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, because this is the window. But the window is going to come to a close, and the apostles always preached that it was going to come to a close, and at that close, judgment and wrath was going to come, and justice was going to be meted out on every person who did not accept, believe, and bow to Him. But, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is God's holiness. Verse 16 of that same um, chapter, Romans 2, says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's Paul's gospel. If you read in the book of Acts, the sermons that the apostles preached, they always included this. Like, if you reject this window and this opportunity, judgment is your option moving forward, and it will come with certainty. They always preached that. Here's one of the most terrifying parables that Jesus gave called the parable of the Minas, Luke chapter 19. At the end of that, he's, it's the whole thing about the vineyard, and then they threw him out, and they, um, you know, all of the messengers that came to give the fruit that the owner wanted. And then at the end, he said, bring these enemies of mine, the son, who did not want me to reign over them. Bring them here and slay them in my presence. And the, the Greek is very graphic. It means to cut them into pieces. 
super graphic. That's the Lord Jesus who died and shed his blood. This is the holiness of the response of those who will reject him. It should be a motivation for us to preach the gospel. But y'all, we have to preach it honestly. And the honest truth is, and this is the way the apostles, like Paul said, this is my gospel. I tell people whenever I preach it, look in the book of Acts. He did it in Acts chapter 17. He did it all through the, the book of Acts. If, if you reject this message and you persist in your rejection of it, you will perish. You will. There's no option. Either you receive the Son, you kiss the Son, you embrace the Son, you bow to the Son, or you will perish. The true gospel has always been a two-part message. The invitation to glorious eternal life in relationship with Jesus for those who humble themselves and receive Him, or the warning of eternal wrath for those who ignore or reject the message. This has always been the gospel of the kingdom, whether we are feeling it or not. And here's a powerful quote by John Piper, and I'll close with this, and then we're going to pray for each other again. If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. This is not evangelism, but deception. If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God. You get converts to an illusion. This is not evangelism, but deception. That's pretty sharp, but I think that's absolutely right. I wish I had more time to expound on some of these things. I know it's very sobering. I told you that nothing today, did I not put out that disclaimer from the beginning? Nothing was going to feel good today. But look, we have to own that God's revelation of Himself in Scripture is the only completely accurate revelation of who He is. And what if we cut out half of what He said He's like? Do, do we actually, are we actually presenting the true God? We have to be faithful to Scripture. We don't have to be mean-spirited and not be gracious. I'm not saying that. But we have to tell the whole truth as Jesus did, as the apostles always did. This is part of the wrestle with Scripture, is that there's things in Scripture, we could talk about stories in the Old Testament that are just flat-out disturbing. Nadab and Abihu, Eli and his sons, right? And it uses this kind of language. God let them keep doing it because he wanted to kill them. Keep playing out rope as long as you can because he despised their rebellion and their self-will against him in the way he was representing. So just saying, this is where we as the people of God, are we under the wrath of God? No. This is the power of the gospel. This should strike us like a lightning bolt. We're no longer. Like, this is what we deserved. We deserved. I, I, I want to ask people, and they go, that's not fair. I go, what is fair? How many people deserve to go to heaven? 
How many people deserve to go to hell? Everybody. So what's fair would be that everybody go to hell and perish, right? Because we've all despised the Lord. We've all treated Him as being of no value. I mean, we, we all lived our life to where everything else was of more value than God. So we all deserve that. This is the glory of the gospel. It should blow our mind. And part of the reason why we have a hard time believing in and trusting in and letting it wash over us the love of God and how rich and how deep it is, is because we don't see His holiness very well. We don't see what we actually deserved. The amazing thing about grace is that what we deserved was complete damnation. From the Lord. That's what we all deserved. It's the example that I use of back in my days of being at, going to rock concerts, being in the front. There was no cell phones in those days, so you didn't have the lights in the room. They have it. They turn it totally dark when the band is coming on the stage, and we'd be up in the front, and all only thing you could smell was just pot smoke. And it's dark, and you can't see, and so often. I remember this happening more than once, being right up by the front of the stage. That's why I have hearing aids today. Um, boom! And flames shoot up 30 feet on each side of the stage. Just fire, boom, like that. And it, it almost makes you fall down. And then the band comes on, you know. That's why I have hearing aids. So... This is how the gospel is supposed to strike us. Oh my goodness! The mercy and the grace and the love that was poured out through Christ Jesus. I wasn't a good guy. I was a wretched rebel against God who loved a candy bar more than I loved him. Who honored any desire that I had more than him. I didn't give a rip about God. And you were the same way in some ways. We were all. Read Ephesians 2. All of us were like this. We were dominated by the spirit of the age, of the devil, and we, all we did was indulge the passions of our flesh and of our mind. That's all we did. That's what it says. Paul said, this is what we were all like, and we were all children of wrath. That means all of us deserved to perish. But... Because of the great love. I can't fathom it. So amazing. So it should shock us and amaze us still. That this holy God who created us to image him and to show his glory, although we totally were a fail on that and willingly so. We weren't just weak. We were rebels. He sent a son to die for us, to bear the punishment that we deserved. This is ridiculously powerful. Of all the people in the world, the people of God, we should be able to grasp this. When we were blind, we couldn't see it. But we can't water down the holiness of God because it's uncomfortable or it doesn't feel good to the culture, that's not okay. It's what gives the gospel its power and makes it 
so amazing. Let's be faithful to the Scripture. Let's love and treasure God's revelation. You want to grow in the knowledge of God? He reveals exactly what He's like in here. There's some things that will tweak you and make you go, oh my goodness. And we should fear the Lord, yes. But we should glory and celebrate in the amazing love and mercy. He didn't just spoon it. He lavished it on us, it says in Ephesians. Dude, you don't lavish with a teaspoon. You lavish with a bucket. We should feel that. We should feel that. All of God is amazing. We're going to marvel at who our God is for, throughout eternity. Amen. I'm glorified when my people declare my excellencies and glory in who I am and celebrate their God by imitating their God. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Would you help us to become better lovers of the truth? Lord, would you keep us out of the ditch of being led by our feelings and letting our beliefs and our understanding of Scripture being shaped by the way that we feel or by the way that the culture feels? Would you help us to be faithful to being lovers of the truth of your word? embracing every word of it, knowing that it's all absolutely right and that it is the only real, accurate, complete representation of who you are. Lord, we love you. We say we embrace every part of who you are and we want you to reveal yourself to us in greater clarity. Lord, we all need to see you. We pray that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we would see you rightly. Seeing you rightly is to see you for who you say that you are. That is the right representation. Would you help us, Lord? As a people, not just in this body, I do pray for us in this room and in this body, but for your people across the world, Lord, and especially in America, I carry this burden, Lord, that we don't honor you and treat you right because of the way that we dispense of Scripture that we don't like and we rationalize why we shouldn't accept it and believe it and we do all kinds of things to manipulate and to undermine the truth of your words. Forgive us, Father. And we're asking for a new revelation. I pray that you would come in your fullness, all of who you are, in our midst and in the midst of your people and that we would stand in awe again as we have not for a very long time. Help us, God. We need your Spirit to help us. Spirit of truth, come and help us to rightly Honor 
who you are based on the truth of who you say you are. We love you. We bless you. And we thank you that you're working in us, in our midst, and you're drawing us into yourself and into your purposes for us. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.